Thanks so much for having me and thanks everyone for coming. Uh, so today, as Nathaniel said, uh, I'm going to bring together two areas of research and one is um, on the question of what faith is, what it is to have faith. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about how philosophers think about this question and then give my own account of what it is to have faith. Uh, and the other area of research is decision theory or game theory. Uh, and decision theory tells us when it's rational to have certain beliefs or perform certain actions. So we're gonna apply decision theory, uh, the results from decision theory to this question of when is it rational to have faith in, uh, in the sense that I'm gonna argue for in the first part of the talk. And we're also going to see along the way why this attitude of faith is important, what purpose it serves in human life. Okay, so just to start with some preliminaries for those of you who aren't as familiar with philosophy. So one thing that philosophers do is they try to do what's called a philosophical analysis. And this is to, uh, make precise some concept so that they can talk about what properties it has. So, for example, in the case of faith, we hear faith in a lot of different contexts. So um, people might make statements involving the term faith uh, in religious contexts. Uh, faith might be this thing you're trying to aim at. In biblical stories, certain people are discussed as having faith and certain people are discussed as not having faith. So we want, th that's all like the data. We want to figure out what precise concept can sort of best capture all this data. So for example, in the case of things people say about faith, uh, here's an example of a statement that sounds fine. I have faith that you will quit smoking. Sounds pretty good. Here's a statement that doesn't sound fine. I have faith that you will continue smoking. Uh, that doesn't, that sort of strikes our ears as wrong. So whatever the correct analysis of faith is, it has to sort of explain why the first thing that could be good, but the second one is bad. Um, or for example, uh, in the Hebrew and Christian Bible, certain characters are talked about as having faith, Abraham and Moses, for example. So whatever our correct account of faith is, has to sort of, explain faith in such a way that Abraham and Moses are central cases of people that have this attitude. Now, just to uh, qualify the question a little bit, uh, there, are, there are two kinds of faith we might talk about. We might talk about mundane faith. You know, I have faith in a friend. I have faith that this bridge will hold me. Or religious faith. I have faith in God. I have faith that God's promises are true and so forth. I'm, some people think of these as different attitudes. I think an account is going to be better insofar as it captures both kinds of faith as a single attitude with different objects. So an account of faith is going to be better insofar as it can apply both to mundane and religious cases. Um, another distinction between, so we, we use the locution faith in, I'd say in a friend. We also use the location faith that. I think that a friend uh, will pick me up at the airport, for example. I'm just going to talk about faith in that. I'm going to assume that faith in can be sort of like analyzed in terms of faith that statement. So I have faith in a friend means I will. I have faith that she will do the kinds of things that I trust her to do, for example. Okay. So um, with those preliminaries out of the way, I will just tell you what my account of faith is. I'm not going to argue for it in detail 
in this talk because I want to then be able to get uh, on to when faith is rational, according to this account, but, but do feel free to press on it in the Q&A. Okay, so I call this the risky commitment account of propositional faith. Nathaniel mentioned Pascal and Kierkegaard. Uh, both Pascal and Kierkegaard had, you know, were sort of famous for not just analyzing, say, like your mental states, but for really caring about action. Kierkegaard in particular was sort of all about um, action and commitment, even in the face of uh, things not looking so good, for example. So while this isn't explicitly either their account of faith, I think this account of faith is very friendly to Kierkegaard in particular. Okay, so first, um, certain propositions are candidates for faith and others aren't. Uh, for example, the proposition that you will continue smoking is not even a candidate for faith. It's not that I can have faith or lack faith in this proposition. It's just not an appropriate object of faith at all. Similarly, the proposition one plus one equals two is not an appropriate object for faith. It's not that I lack faith in this proposition. It's that it's sort of not the kind of thing to which faith can apply at all. So uh, in order for a proposition to be a candidate for, for faith for a particular person S, S must care that the proposition holds and S also has to be uncertain that it holds on the basis of his evidence alone. So um, I can't have faith that you will continue smoking because I don't want that to be true. I can't have faith that one plus one equals two because I'm certain of this on the basis of my objective evidence alone. Um, okay, so those are the propositions that are candidates for faith. Now, when do I have faith in a candidate proposition? So I claim that a subject S has faith that X, if and only if two things hold. First, the subject is willing to take a risk on the claim X without looking for additional evidence. And second, the subject is willing to follow through on his risky actions, even when he receives evidence against the claim in question. So in order to have faith, you have to have two things, a commitment to take, taking risks on the claim without looking for more evidence. You don't need more evidence. You can just dive right in. And uh, a commitment to follow through with the risk, even if you get evidence to the contrary. And we might say to the extent that the subject is willing to perform riskier acts that express his faith and remain steadfast in the face of stronger counter evidence, he has a higher degree of faith that the claim holds. Okay, so two examples just to sort of illustrate this kind of uh, faith. One comes from popular culture from the show Downton Abbey. Um, so in fact, I came up with this example before we knew sort of like the conclusion of the questions of the, the, the sort of the proposition that we're unsure of is whether this guy Bates is a murderer. Um, but so, you know, so, anyway, here, so here's the example. So Anna, one of the characters in the show, has known Bates for a long time, and he has proposed marriage. She has abundant evidence that he's morally upstanding. Thus, she believes to a high degree that he is not capable of murder. However, he is currently under investigation for murder. If he is innocent, he would make an excellent husband, but it would be a disaster to marry a murderer. So here are her choices. She could accept his proposal or decline it and continue her fairly happy life. Um, 
And so what is she going to do if she has faith? If she has faith that Bates is innocent, then she will agree to marriage before the investigation is concluded. And furthermore, she'll stick with the decision, even if the investigation finds him guilty. So again, um, we have a claim. Bates is innocent. Our subject, Anna, is willing to take a risk on this claim, namely accept Bates's proposal. She's willing to do, for, do so without, say, like conducting an investigation herself or waiting for the conclusion of the investigation. And furthermore, even if the, um, the judge finds him guilty, so even if she gets evidence against her claim that Bates is innocent, she still has to be willing to follow through on her commitment and um, stick with her decision. So that's a mundane example. Here's a religious example, has to do with Moses. So Moses has interacted with God personally. He has ample reason to believe that God is trustworthy and cares about his people. So that's the faith that, uh, that's the claim that Moses is gonna have faith in. God is trustworthy and cares about his people. Um, God has told him to journey out of Egypt with his people. Um, and, oh, and sorry, here's the claim. So the claim he has faith in is the claim that such a journey would indeed be successful. If such a journey would indeed be successful, if God will indeed lead his people to the promised land, then embarking on the journey would be the best thing for Moses and his people. But if it would not be successful, then embarking on it would be a disaster. So there's the risk. Uh, embarking on the journey, if the faith claim is true, if it's true that God will lead his people to the promised land, then that's better than um that action turns out really good. And if that thing is false, that action turns out really bad. Um, on the other hand, there's sort of like a safe action, namely just staying in Egypt. That's why the first action is a risk that Moses can take on the basis of the claim. Um, so leading his people out of Egypt is a risk on the claim that uh, God will indeed lead his people to the promised land. Um, okay, so he could embark on the journey or successfully stay in Egypt. Uh, Moses had faith that God would lead his people to the promised land. So he embarked on the journey without first verifying that it would be successful. And he stood firm, even when the Egyptians pursued his people to the Red Sea. So we can again see how Moses kind of counts as a central case of faith on my account. So uh, he's willing to take a risk on the claim that God will lead his people out of Egypt without looking for additional evidence. And he's willing to follow through on this action, he's willing to still continue to lead his people out of Egypt, even when he receives evidence against this claim in the form of um, uh, you know, Pharaoh continuing to hold his people back. So in, in fact, this happens multiple times. So you know, Moses says, all right, uh, we're gonna lead Egypt. And Pharaoh says, no, then uh, there's a plague. So Pharaoh says, yes. So Moses gets his people ready for the journey. And then Pharaoh says, no. And then there's another plague. And then Pharaoh says, yes. And Moses gets his people ready for the journey, etc. And then when they're leaving Egypt, uh, Pharaoh's army pursues Moses. So Moses is, is continually in the situation of getting evidence against the claim that the journey out of Egypt will indeed be successful. Nonetheless, he sticks with his commitment to take the journey because he has faith that God will indeed lead his people to the promised land. Okay, so again, that's what it is on my account to have faith in some claim. You're willing to take a risk on it without looking for more evidence, and you're willing to commit to taking this risk even if you get evidence to the contrary.
So now uh, the question we are interested in is when um, and why would it ever be rational to have faith in this sense? When, if ever, is it rational to take a risk on a claim without looking for more evidence? And when, if ever, is it rational to follow through on such risky actions, um, even when you receive evidence against the claim? Uh, and, and this is like, it's a little bit, would be a little bit surprising if this could ever be rational, because in general, we tend to think that decisions made with more evidence are better. And we tend to think that um, you know, we should follow the evidence where it leads. We should take all of our evidence into account and be willing to reconsider a decision. So on the face of it, it looks like this kind of faith is always going to be irrational. Uh, but in fact, I'm going to argue that sometimes it is rational. Um, you know, important caveat, by the way, sometimes it's not rational. So um, we should be, I think, suspicious of an account of faith that says that faith is always good, or faith is always a virtue, or faith is always rational. We should be equally suspicious of, account, of an account that says faith is never a virtue, or not, never good, or never rational. Um, intuitively, we think they're sort of like good cases of having faith in something and bad cases of having faith in something. So the right account should be able to help us distinguish between the good cases and the bad cases. Okay, so before I tell you when and why it's rational to have faith, let me tell you a little bit about how philosophers think about rationality. And this is how um, people within, working within the, the area of, of game theory or decision theory or probability theory in particular, in particular, think about this question. Okay, so there are two kinds of rationality one we might call epistemic rationality, that's rationality in what you believe. So is, is your sort of like, um, is your mental life in order? Does, do your beliefs fit with the kind of evidence you have and so forth? Um, and we also have practical rationality, which is rationality in what you do. Are your actions really uh, the ones that are best for you, given your evidence or given what you believe or given what you know? So in particular, uh, philosophers working in decision theory and probability theory uh, think of epistemic rationality, not just in terms of whether you have good beliefs, but in terms of whether you have good degrees of belief or subjective probabilities. So here's the sort of idea behind degrees of belief or, or subjective probabilities. So um, you believe lots of things, for example, you believe maybe that, uh, that it's sunny in Princeton today. Um, you also might believe that uh, it will be sunny in Princeton 10 days from now, but you, uh, at least if you're me, you have a much stronger belief in the first thing than the second thing. You are uh, more willing, you, you say you'd like, you'd bet more money on the first thing, then the second thing, um, you maybe endorse it more strongly. And so what we want to have to sort of capture this idea is the idea that you can believe things to different degrees. And things you believe to a really high degree are going to be things that you have like lots and lots of evidence for and uh, 
no or almost no evidence against. So for example, I believe to an extremely high degree that the sun will rise tomorrow. My, my degree of belief is one or maybe almost one. Um, I believe to like a much lower degree that um, the Red Sox will win the World Series this year. Maybe my degree of belief is like, I don't know, point 0.1. So, and I'm, I'm willing to bet different amounts of money on these two books. So philosophers think that degree, that beliefs come in degrees. Philosophers also think that degrees of belief behave like probabilities. So for example, if you assign, if, if your degree of belief that it will rain tomorrow is 0.2, then your degree of belief that it won't rain tomorrow is 0.8. Your beliefs, your degree of belief in contrary propositions should sum to one. Um, or if you believe that it'll rain to degree 0.2 and believe that it'll snow to degree 0.1, then your degree of belief that it will rain or snow should be 0.3. So saying that degrees of belief behave like probabilities allow us to do some nice things with them, as I'll talk about in a minute. They allow us to sort of um, approach decisions about what acts to take in the world just like we might approach those decisions if, say, we were in a casino making bets or if we were um, yeah, doing certain actions in the stock market or those kinds of things. And this is obviously, it, it's sort of a model. It's more precise than people probably are, but it's going to sort of tell us something about how what we might call an ideally rational person would behave and that will help us help in turn tell us something about what it's rational to do, even if like we're not as precise as the model suggests. Okay. So anyway, epistemic rationality has to do with rationality in your degrees of belief. Your degrees of belief should fit with the evidence. Um, so if you have stronger evidence for something, you should have a higher degree of belief in it, for example. Um, now notice that Faith on my account actually doesn't require you to do anything special with your degrees of belief. Um, it doesn't say, for example, believe uh, more strongly than the evidence suggests or have a really high degree of belief despite not having evidence or have degree of belief one, even though, um, even though your objective evidence doesn't get you there. Uh, it just talks about what to do. So uh, faith is going to, to be epistemically rational already, at least if you're correctly responding to your evidence for a claim, then having faith in that claim, um, there's not going to be anything epistemically wrong with that. I'll talk about uh, on-off degrees of belief in a minute, but just in terms of your degrees in, in, of belief, in terms of how you see the evidence, you don't need to do anything special. Okay. So practical rationality, on the other hand, is rationality in what you do. And the sort of standard view of this is that you should maximize expected utility um, given your utilities and probabilities. And here's the basic idea. So just as your degrees of belief are represented by probabilities, uh, how much you like various things is represented by your utilities or how good various outcomes are um, for you is represented by your utilities. For example, take the case of Moses leading his people out of Egypt, 
if he successfully leads his people out of Egypt, we might say that's got a very high utility just to sort of assign arbitrary numbers to it, maybe utility 100. Um, if he uh, doesn't successfully lead his people out of Egypt, if they're, they're killed at the hands of the Egyptians or if they starve in the desert, then um, let's say that's utility zero. On the other hand, if he does the, the safe thing and just stays in Egypt, maybe that has utility, I don't know, um, E, just to put some, some sort of numbers on this. Okay. Um, and then what expected utility maximization says is, so first just like start with um, kind of an ordinary decision, like um, whether I should bring my umbrella today. Uh, expected utility says, well, Think about the probability that it will rain. Take the utility of carrying an umbrella if it rains, multiply it by that probability. Take the utility of carrying an umbrella if it, if it doesn't rain, multiply it by that probability. Then you've got the, um, the value of the action of carrying an umbrella. Uh, compare that to the value of not carrying an umbrella, which will be the utility of not carrying an umbrella if it rains times the probability that it rains, plus the utility of carrying the umbrella, if it, sorry, plus the utility of not carrying the umbrella if it doesn't rain times the probability of it not raining. And then you just sort of see which of those two numbers is higher. Okay, um, so similarly, sorry about that. Uh, so, so decision theory says you should evaluate all your actions like that. You should sort of evaluate all your actions as if you're, um, you know, you're engaged in, in a kind of betting behavior. So when Moses is figuring out what to do, should take the probability that um, given his evidence that he will successfully lead his people out of Egypt, uh, multiply that by the value of doing so, um, add to that the probability that he will not successfully lead his people out, out of Egypt, multiply that by the utility of not successfully leading his people out of Egypt. That's sort of like the instrumental value of Moses leading his people out of Egypt. And he can compare that to the safe act of not giving it a chance at all. Okay, so that's the sort of basic framework that decision theory works with. Um, given this, we can ask the question, uh, when is it rational to have faith? In particular, when is it practically rational to take a risk without looking for more evidence? And when is it practically rational to stick with a risk, even if we get evidence to the contrary? In particular, even if we get evidence that makes it no longer seem like a good decision. So let's start with the first part. When and why it's practically rational to adopt faith, to, to sort of commit to a risk without looking for more evidence. Well, there are two relevant cases here. The first one is kind of boring, but I'll mention it for completeness. In the first case, it might just be that new evidence won't change your mind about what to do. So for example, let's say Moses is currently very confident that he will lead his people out of Egypt. Um, say he has probability 0.95. It might be that all the evidence he could get would just lower his probability just a little bit, say maybe to 0.9. Um, such that the action of leading his people out of Egypt still has higher expected utility. So if this is the case, then it's always going to be permissible to have faith. It's always going to be okay to take a risk without looking for more evidence. 
And in fact, uh, faith is going to be required if there are costs to postponing the decision. So maybe if, um, if Moses waits another week and the time it will take to, for him to gather more evidence, maybe um, some people will become sick or some people will become injured at the hands of the Egyptians. So in that case, it would be required for Moses to commit to, to leading his people out of Egypt without looking for more evidence. All right. So anyway, that's like slightly boring case uh, because although faith is rational, we actually don't learn anything about the role of faith. The second case is more interesting. And that's the case in which new evidence might change your mind about what to do. So let's say Moses is contemplating going to Pharaoh uh, to ask him, um, you know, to like ask him again, you sure you're not going to chase me this time? Uh, and it might be that, so Pharaoh might say, yes, that will increase Moses's confidence that he should lead his people out of Egypt. Um, on the other hand, Pharaoh might say no, and that might decrease his confidence. So if Pharaoh says no, he might only have assign probability 0.5 to successfully leading his people out of Egypt. And if he has probability 0.5, let's say, then the values just don't work out. It, it doesn't maximize expected utility to do the risky thing. You should do the safe thing and stay in Egypt. Okay, so, um, so that's the second case. Uh, Moses currently has a high enough probability to try to lead his people out of Egypt, but he's contemplating asking Pharaoh gathering more evidence before he does so. Um, now, there are some good things and bad things about um, asking Pharaoh. So here's some good things. Uh, if, in fact, Moses will not successfully lead his people out of Egypt, he will be talked out of taking a bad risk. Um, so he will be he will get to do the safe action when in fact the safe action is the one that's better for him and his people. On the other hand, here are two bad things about um, asking Pharaoh. If in fact, Pharaoh says no, uh, but it, it would have been a good thing for Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, then he will be talked out of taking a bad uh, sorry, then he will be talked out of taking a good risk. So he would have successfully led his people out of Egypt, but in fact, because he gathers more evidence and the evidence is disfavorable, he doesn't lead his people out of Egypt. We might call this misleading evidence. So he's talked out of taking a good risk by misleading evidence. Um, and another consideration against um, asking Pharaoh is that, uh, again, there might be costs to postponing this decision. Okay, so we can, um, I'm not gonna do this, but we can formally model these various considerations and how they weigh against each other. And we can sort of come up with uh, a result that says when the good considerations of asking Pharaoh are outweighed by the bad considerations. And it turns out they are outweighed, the following th three things happen. First, you already have a high degree of belief in the proposition in question. So, so Moses is already um, very confident that God will lead his people out of Egypt. Um, second, counter evidence won't be conclusive. So if he asks Pharaoh and Pharaoh says no, it won't drop his, his degree of belief all the way to like 0.1. 
it'll just put him somewhere in the middle. So now he's sort of like not sure one way or the other, whether it's a good risk. Um, and finally, either there are costs to postponing the decision or Moses is risk avoidant. So this is a technical notion that I won't spend much time talking about, but the basic idea is that if instead of maximizing expected utility, you place more weight on worst case scenarios and less weight on better case scenarios, then you're risk avoidant. So if all three, th three of these things obtain, then not only is faith rational, it's actually rationally required. Um, and the reason for it is this. I talked about like, here are good considerations of asking Pharaoh and here are the bad considerations. Um, well, you can sort of just look at the nature of these good and bad considerations. And the, the, the key bad consideration is that you might be talked out of taking a good risk by getting misleading evidence. So, and when that probability is high enough, then having faith, in other words, being committed without looking for more evidence is going to be good for you. In particular, faith is going to, to um, keep you from being, being misled by misleading evidence. So it's gonna like keep you from being blown about by the winds of changing evidence. So not only have we seen when faith is rational, but we've sort of seen the function of faith. The function of faith is to um, keep us committed to something when our evidential situation is like dicey in the following sense. Although we're now pretty sure there's all this, there's, there's potential evidence out there that might mislead us into not taking a risk that would have been good. So that's um, when and why it's practically rational to adopt faith, to make these commitments. Uh, we also want to ask when and why it's rational to maintain these commitments. So it's not just that Moses doesn't ask um, Pharaoh for additional evidence. In fact, Moses gets counter evidence in the form of Pharaoh saying no multiple times, and yet Moses remains committed anyway. So um, when and why is it practically rational to remain committed once you get counter evidence? Um, so again, think of the second case where new evidence will change or might change your mind about what to do. So in this case, um, we have uh, Moses received some evidence that puts it in the state such that if he was just deciding on the basis of the evidence he now has, it would not be rational for him to leave Egypt. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, he's committed to le leading Egypt. So what's like the function of such a commitment? Well, think about two policies you might adopt. You might adopt the policy of choosing, of making decisions according to what your evidence is now. Or on the other hand, you might make commitments and you might stick with those commitments even if you end up in what we might call an evidential trough, a state in which it would not in fact be rational to, um, to do the action if you hadn't already made a commitment. Um, now think of what happens to the person who adopts the first policy, the policy of choosing according to whatever perspective he has at the time. 
Well, this person is simply not going to be able to perform long-term risky actions if the, if the sort of evidential situation for those actions is that um, evidence sort of by its nature pushes him up and down. That person's just sort of like, there are gonna be lots and lots of risky paths that just aren't available to that person, even if they would have turned out well. Whereas the second kind of person, the person who adopts commitments, um, he and sticks with them even when he gets evidence to the contrary, he's going to be able to uh, undertake these long-term projects with uncertain evidence. Uh, so we might say, faith keeps us from being blown about by the changing winds of evidence. Um, and I claim actually that there, there are a lot of long-term risky actions that are like this in human life. So many of you are students, consider the, um, consider the project of completing graduate school. So maybe when you start graduate school, you're like pretty confident that you can finish it and you're confident on the basis of the evidence of your undergraduate career, you've got a good track record. Um, okay, so you get to grad school, uh, your first paper gets a good grade, hooray! Your confidence that you will complete grad school goes up. Um, then you have a different class and you have a bad experience. Your, your paper gets a very bad grade. In this case, your, your confidence that you're going to be able to complete graduate school plummets and it plummets rationally so. But importantly, you're like not in a position to definitively know that you won't complete grad school. You just now have serious and rational doubts. Um, and maybe then, uh, you know, two weeks later, you give a good presentation in your class and your confidence goes up and up again. And then uh, you try this idea and it doesn't work out and your confidence goes down and so forth. So we could sort of, if we could map your probabilities over time, they'd like look like this, um, some ups and some downs. Now, if you were the kind of person that is willing to quit whenever you, your probability that you'll complete it is low, then you're not gonna complete grad school. Um, and it's not because of anything, like your confidence is up and down rationally so, you're just responding to the evidence. Um, it's just the sort of nature of projects like this that you're going to get evidence that blows you around. And lots of projects are like this, so maybe like the project of um, staying married or being married, uh, rest in having faith that the, in the claim that your spouse uh, is like a good spouse or is, you know, yeah, like maybe that you can get along with your spouse long-term, but it might be that uh, over the course of a long marriage, your evidence for this claim goes up and down so that your probabilities um, kind of go up and down. If you're the kind of person that will drop out when uh, the when you, you sort of correctly and rationally assess the probability that you can get along with your spouse, to be low, then you can't complete this project. Um, maybe the project of being a nun, which rests on faith in the claim that God exists. Maybe this is something that you're sort of inherently gonna, your evidence is going to sometimes make you doubt it. Uh, maybe the project of working for justice, uh, where you sort of need to have faith in the claim that you'll, you will make a difference at all. And the evidence for this claim that goes up and down. So there are lots of projects like this where uh, we can only complete them if we're committed to 
if we're committed to them, even in the face of doubts, even in the face of serious doubts, doubts that would make us not start the project in the first place if we were deciding um, whether to start it in the first place. So that, I claim, is the function of faith. It's to keep us committed to these projects, even when we have serious doubts. Um, and again, faith is only going to be rational in certain circumstances. So um, you shouldn't just arbitrarily adopt faith in something. You shouldn't like on date number two say, great, I have faith that this person would be a good spouse for me. Because in fact, um, you shouldn't have high credence in that proposition. So again, faith is going to be rational. If your evidence in favor of a proposition is already pretty strong, if the way, the, the nature of the evidence in the, out there in the world is such that it won't be conclusive um, against the claim in question, and either their cost to postponing the decision or giving up the project, or uh, you avoid risk. Okay. Um, so the picture here, again, is that when you get counter evidence, you should, in fact, update your degree of belief. So Moses should, on the basis of his like objective evidence, once Pharaoh starts pursuing him, his probability that he should that he and his people will make it out of Egypt should not be very high. Um, nonetheless, he should stick with his action of um, bringing the people out of Egypt. Okay, so a couple brief applications. One, you might be so I've been talking about degrees of belief and action. You might be wonder how like belief simpliciter fits in here. So just on-off belief. Um, there are a lot of different views of how on-off belief relates to degrees of belief. Uh, but also I'll just talk about one. Uh, one way to think of belief is that belief itself is a risky action. Um, you believe some claim. If that claim is in fact true, that's great. A high utility, if that claim is in fact false, that's bad, low utility, um, compared to the safe act of being agnostic about the claim. So given that the structure of, and that act has some, some utility in the middle. So given that the structure of belief is just like the structure of one of these risky actions, like being married to a person um, when he's undergoing a murder trial or... Uh, leading your people out of Egypt when you have Pharaoh often pursuing you. Um, the standards for rationally committing to a belief will be the same as like the standards for rationally committing to an action. So you should have, um, you should express your faith by having a belief, or we might say you should like believe by faith or believe on the basis of faith. If you have high credence, in the proposition, if counter evidence won't be conclusive, and if either there are costs to remaining agnostic or you avoid risk. Okay, so this is a picture on which um, both actions and beliefs can be maintained despite your evidence putting you in a position where, like, if you didn't already have a commitment, you might be agnostic. And this has this itself has a couple applications. I'll just uh, briefly mention three. The first application is um, a problem philosophers often talk about. It's called a problem of peer disagreement. And this is basically uh, what should happen to your, to your state of mind or your epistemic state, your, your certainty um, about a claim or your belief or not, when 
you meet someone who has the same evidence you have and um, is sort of just as good of a reasoner as you, but disagrees with you. So for example, maybe you're a theist, you've like thought about it a lot. Um, you're pretty confident that God exists. And then you meet an atheist who's like read the same things you have and is also very smart and um, doesn't believe in God or expresses a, a low confidence in his belief in God. Um, what should happen to your belief? There are a couple answers, but they're all un unsatisfying in some respects. So like you could just say, uh, well, I can ignore the other guy. But that's not a very humble response. That doesn't really take seriously the idea that this other guy is sort of like just as smart as you and coming at it with, um, you know, with a perspective of knowing the same information. The, um, the, another kind of response is that you might say, um, okay, well, he disagrees with me. He's just as smart as me. Uh, I'm going to become completely agnostic. But that's not a very satisfying response either, because then you're going to end up sort of spineless. You're not going to be committed to anything. Um, what this picture of faith allows us to do is to have some response in the middle. Namely, you exhibit humility by changing your degrees of belief. So you maybe, whereas before you were 0.9, now you're like genuinely 0.5. That's what your evidence says to you. Um, but nonetheless, you can maintain your belief and you can maintain your religious commitment. So that sort of like allows us to be humble without being spineless. Um, two other brief applications. There's this question of what happens when we switch from one tradition to another. So what is it to be committed to a tradition? Um, being committed to a tradition has some puzzling features. One feature is that people seem to respond dogmatically to evidence against their tradition. Um, another puzzling feature is that uh, switching from one tradition to another seems to be something different from ordinary belief shifts. So we call it conversion for a reason. Something like different happens uh, from the ordinary case in which I just get new beliefs or change my beliefs. Uh, both these features can be explained by my account because my account um, sort of allows you to maintain your belief or commitments to actions as your evidence shifts. But then there will come a certain point if you keep getting, getting evidence against the thing that in fact, it will no longer be rational to stick with the belief. So for example, um, you know, Moses, he's at 0.9, great, he's at 0.5, now he's in doubt but his faith commitment uh, will keep him going anyway. Maybe if he goes all the way down to point one, it will no longer be rational for him to maintain his commitment. So this sort of explains what happens with conversion is that um, your evidence shifts, but your belief doesn't because you're, um, you're committed or you have faith in the core assumption of your tradition. But then at some point, your evidence uh, is so bad for the thing in question that you give it up. Um, and this is why people who convert sort of often report feeling like, oh, the evidence has been there for a while, but it took me, it took me a long time to shift. Um, and finally, my account explains uh, how it is that trusting someone else's testimony 
is a case of faith and in fact is a rational case of faith. Because in general, if you're trusting someone in authority, you're going to have a high credence um, in what they say. And if somebody else uh, says something against it, even if that person is you, that's not going to be conclusive. And maybe there are going to be costs to like not um, uh, to like remain agnostic or not trusting the testimony. Okay, so uh, there was a lot in there, but that was a picture of uh, what. I think faith is and when and why such faith can be rational. Thanks for listening.